tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. Fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to explain a lot of things today, <laughs> I hope. And, uh, well, <laughs> welcome to another hour of biblical obscurity. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan, all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. No, the Bible. Before we launch into today's readings, I want to speak about a phone call I got yesterday, which was a lovely phone call from Grace. In I think it was wasn't it Grace? Dear voice in my head, I think her name was Grace. And Grace was it from? It was yeah, it was from Austin, not California. It was Grace from Austin, and she asked a question that I get asked a lot because it just doesn't seem that the chronology of the of the birth of Jesus works. You got Jesus being born, and let's let's assume the traditional dates, okay? Uh, um, I think there actually is increasing reason to think that Jesus was born on December twenty fifth. Um, that's argued about a lot, you know. Well, the, the, there were the sheep were abiding in the field at the at this time, and they didn't abide in the field at that time. Where were they going? They had to abide somewhere, you know. It it just so many people want to uh, debunk or or de-emphasize traditional Christianity that that they want to point out, well, Jesus wasn't born in December, and you know it's all mythology. Um, the early Christians were just trying to distract uh, their congregants from from uh, uh, Roman holidays. That's just not true. The early Christians celebrated the birth of Jesus because they thought that's when he was born. Uh, a prophet was born on the day, or he was conceived, according to, to Jewish belief at the time, a prophet was conceived on the day he was born. Same day. One year later. Uh, no, nine months later. I'm, I'm confusing this. Excuse me. Take a deep breath, Simon. And... <sighs> All right. We will now unconfuse it. A prophet died on the same day as his conception. And the date of the death of Jesus was thought to be March 25th in certain calendars. Remember, calendars varied. Um, 
and so he would have been conceived on March 25th. Uh, there you go. And nine months after March 25th is December 25th. So they believed he was born on December 25th. It is not the solstice. It is not the Feast of the Unconquered Sun. It is not the Saturnalia. Those are all different dates. So clearly, uh, they celebrated Christmas on December 25th. So we're going to go December 25th, 1 BC. And Jesus would have been brought to the temple. Or he would have been uh, circumcised, rather, eight days later. He would have entered into the covenant on 111. Remember, there was no year zero. Then... Of course, he would have been presented in the temple uh, along with the purification of his mother uh, at a time 30 days after, uh, a minimum of 30 days after his birth. Uh, he would have been presented and brought, bought back, according to the covenant, with the sacrifice of the poor, two turtle doves. And that's called Pidion Haben, the, 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 the buying back of the son. And Mary would have been presented in the temple at the same time. At some point, the Magi came, and they returned by another route. Well, okay, you got December 25th, he's born, January 1st, he's circumcised. Um, uh, the Magi come January 6th, and then... Uh, he flees immediately into Egypt, but then he must come back real quickly for the... No, 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 no. The Bible does not say when the Magi came. We celebrated on January 6th. There are three celebrations of the, uh, the manifestation of the Lord. Christmas, uh, Epiphany, and the baptism of the Lord. Those three feasts are celebrated in tandem. But there's no source that says on January 6th, the Magi showed up. But we celebrate it then. Yeah, we celebrate it then. Then we celebrate lots of things on interesting dates. George Washington observed, a birthday observed. The problem here that so many people, and I, I know that there were revisionists who taught me who wanted to say that this was all just mythology, that the three kings never showed up and Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem and all this is just mythology, but well, you can believe it if you want. And that's, that's wrong. That was, they really, really discouraged any kind of faith in the, in the history of scripture. Because I think even my professors didn't, now this is a little bold of me to say, take it with a grain of salt, I may be wrong. I don't think my professors understood the nature of ancient history, ancient historiography, the writing of history. The ancients were not so much interested in what happened as the meaning of what happened. They always looked for a moral in, read Plutarch's lives, uh, any of the histories, they're all about meaning. And since the Enlightenment, we want just the facts. And that's not what the ancients were interested in. They knew the facts Oral tradition was more respected than written tradition in the ancient world. You read in Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, not only have I looked at the written sources, but I've talked to people who talked to people who talked to people who knew. We think that doesn't work, but for them, if you had reliable witnesses saying something, that was much more accurate than a written source. We have a different perspective on that. Now, I have said about a hundred times that the four Gospels were not intended by their human authors to be Gospels. 
In fact is, if you look at Matthew, Luke, and John, they don't mention gospel. The gospel of Mark does. It says the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But the other three don't even claim to be gospels. All four of those books were written by their human authors for a human purpose. The Gospel of Matthew, I believe, was written to say to, to make the point that Jesus was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The Gospel of Mark was written to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. The Gospel of John was written to show that Jesus was the Messiah and John the Baptist was not. The Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, two volumes of one work, I firmly believe were written to defend the ministry of St. Paul and, therefore, the ministry of Jesus. They were written as a legal document. It starts out, the Gospel of Luke starts out with the words for eyewitnesses, assistants in the law case. They translated ministers of the word, but the word is hiperetis to logu. Hiperetis is a, is a, is a, a functionary. A minister is a diaconos. These are functionaries of the Logos, and Logos can mean court case. When you see that word, autopti, eyewitnesses, it, it moves you to think, hmm, this is, sounds very legal. Now, uh, and it's addressed to someone who is a court official, Your Excellency Theophilus, and I think Dr. Brent Pitrie is right that uh, it was uh, addressed to one of the high priests, uh, the family of Annas, took the high priesthood, and the Romans wouldn't let them have one have let one person have all that power. So, Annas managed to get his all of his sons and his son-in-law Caiaphas into the position of high priest. So he continued to dominate the high priesthood. So, all that said, you're not going to see in the Gospel of Luke things that are going to point out that Jesus was uh, in trouble with the law on the day he was born. You're not going to see. Uh, uh, as many temple references in the Gospel of uh, uh, Matthew, because Matthew was written to show that Jesus was uh, um, a fulfillment of prophecy. I have brought my son out of Egypt, so to fulfill the prophecy. You see that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Now we continue to say, but these are histories. These are not histories. They're historical. And all the details in them, I really believe, happened. I have no reason not to believe they happened. They all make sense in the context of the times. Uh, and these are authentic ancient documents that have been carefully handed down. Uh, if, they, if, if they agreed too well, as I always tell you, then I wouldn't trust them. You know, the fact that the, there are two angels here and there's one angel there, and that's we've handed down what we've received. These are reliable ancient documents that have been carefully handed down. I have no reason to believe these things did not happen actually. But these are not written to be histories. They're written by their human authors to make certain points from the common fund of knowledge about Jesus, which was the gospel. The gospel in the Bible is an oral phenomenon. If someone comes to you preaching another gospel, then we preach, St. Paul says, let him be anathema. The Holy Spirit, the ultimate author of the whole book and of these texts, meant them for something different. He meant them to give us the details that were useful to our salvation, not useful to our historic or scientific uh, curiosity. You cannot read the Gospels as if you were reading a 20th century history. 
You can read them as historical, but we need to read them as they were written, looking for meaning, the meaning that the authors put into them and the meaning that the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, put into them. So when when people tell you, oh, the gospel can't be true because one says he went to Egypt, the other says he didn't go to Egypt, uh, no, they neither of them say he did or didn't. One of them says he did. One of them just talks around the topic. So I think that, you know, that, that phone call at the end, uh, very important idea. So I wanted to share it. Now let's go to, to the readings of the day. And I'm sorry I've spoken so much about that, but it just seems important to me. This is a really tough bunch of Bible here. <laughs> the voice might saying, yeah, it's your show. You can do whatever you want. Well, within limits. Uh, let's go to the gospel first, because there is some... In- now, really take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt, because, uh, you know, these are theories. Uh, and, and uh, well, <laughs> we'll do our best. Jesus summoned the 12. Note, he summoned the 12. He didn't summon the 12 apostles. He summoned the 12. He summoned the 12, and then he apostled them. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He instructed them to take nothing for the journey but a walking stick, no food, no sack, no money in their belts. Not a second tunic. In other words, they were to go completely trusting in God. Well, why why, why were they to wear sandals? Because those are important signs of status. They were the, the, they were the messengers of a king. I remember a Guatemalan uh, friend told me that when he was a kid, they were so poor that they might have a pair of shoes, but they would never wear them unless they went into town. They would walk to town carrying their shoes. And then when they got to the outskirts of town, put them on because, well people of, of substance had shoes and they weren't going to waste shoe leather in the village. They were waiting until they got to the town. So, so, um, uh, that old, that old spiritual, all God's chilling God's shoes, um, that, that this was a matter of status. So, uh, when you go to a house, stay there until you leave from there. In other words, <laughs> don't look for a better deal. I remember when we would do retreat teams that we would be hosted by a family. Then some richer family with a swimming pool, perhaps, would invite us over. Oh, I thank you. That's nice. And, of course, we would abandon the poor and go live with the rich. Don't do that. Um, so then whatever place does not welcome you or listen to you, leave there. Shake the dust off your feet. I have heard that it was the custom of the particularly pious when they got to the the uh, um, borders of the Holy Land, they would take off their sandals if they were wearing them and beat the dust off them so they didn't take any unclean Gentile dust into the Holy Land. And if this is true, then it would be that where, where the word of God is received, that's the Holy Land. Uh, um, and so uh, they went and preached repentance and they drove out demons and they anointed many with oil who were sick and cured them. Why oil? Oil, as I've explained before, is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You know how good a chapstick or hand lotion feels uh, on a dry day? Well, that's how they used olive oil. It's like saying the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, is as good for the soul as as uh, 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 as chapstick is for the lips. So there, that's, that's just some explainings about this. But what I really want to talk about, and I've got a few minutes to do it, is the first reading. We see it's First Kings 7, chapter, verse 1 to 4, and then it skips six verses and goes 10 to 12. You want to read those six verses. They're not nice. It turns out that uh, uh, um, verse 6 says, um, or verse 5 says, 
You know yourself what Joab, son of Zeruiah, did to me, what he did to the commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them and brought the blood of war into a time of peace and put the blood of war on the belt about his waist, the sandal on his foot. Act in all wisdom you possess. Do not let his gray head go down to Shaol, to, to the underworld, in peace. In other words, this is his last will and testament to Solomon, and he's telling them, in the verses that we've left out from the reading du jour, he's telling them, Make sure you execute Joab. And then, but be true to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite. They were loyal to me. Verse 8, you also have with you Shimei ben Gera, uh, the kinsman of Saul. We saw this was the guy throwing dirt and rocks at David. And David said, well, maybe God told him to curse me. Uh, so don't do anything to him. Well, now he tells Saul to kill him. Why is David, David is a man after God's own heart, and the last thing he does is order the, he had made a, a promise that as long as he lived, these people would be fine. Well, when he's not alive, they're not going to be fine. Why would he do this? Because Joab was a general of the army, and Shimei was in a clan that David had uh, ousted from power. In other words, he's telling uh, Solomon, these people um, have essentially committed treason, and you will not have peace in the kingdom. I don't think he's doing it for the sake of revenge as much as saying, you're not going to sit on the throne with any kind of security as long as Job and Shimei are alive. Um, they've done, they've committed capital crimes. I, I, I uh, gave them a, a reprieve, but uh, take care of them. And then it ends with Solomon uh sitting on the throne of David, his father, and his kingship was established. In order to establish his kingship and to save the country from war, he had to execute two people who were guilty of capital crimes uh, by their standards. But it is interesting how uh, this idea that David was a man of blood and couldn't build the temple, and he continued to the last minute to be a man of blood. So... Uh, uh, this is very interesting. I, again, the, the Bible doesn't make its heroes perfect. It doesn't, you know, you look at Abraham, who's lies about his wife. You look at David, who's uh, essentially a, a, a dangerous thug in many situations. And these are the people through whom God established his his. His presence in the world. And it's not supposed to be like that. you got to have the people in the white hats and the people in the black hats. Well, guess what? You're never going to meet anybody who isn't an original sinner. And if you're looking for perfection in human beings, even the human beings of the Bible, save for our, our blessed Lord and uh, our blessed mother, you're going to be very disappointed. The greatest saints are great saints because they realize that they're great sinners and they have asked God for forgiveness and for, for repentance. And, uh, I look at my, you know, I, I have a dear friend who knew Dorothy day and, uh, um, whenever they try to canonize Dorothy day, and I don't mean that in the, in the canonical sense, but whenever they try, Oh, Dorothy day was such a saint. He said, don't, she would be furious to hear you call it that. She used to say, Dorothy day used to say, don't call me a saint. Don't call me a saint. That leaves you off the hook. If I'm, if you call me a saint, that means you don't have to do this. You're responsible to the poor. Don't, don't, don't call me a saint because it leaves you off the hook. Well, we look at the people in the Bible and God used them. And you know what? If God used them, use you and me too. Sinners saved by grace. When we expect perfection from a human being, we are committing idolatry. 
all we can expect from a human being is weak humanity and uh, uh, all we can expect from God is perfect grace and love. All right, let us with that thought go to a break and we will come back with some letters. I got some great letters. Uh, 888-914-9149 and do not wait to call in with a question that is earth shaking. At least give me a few minutes. Everybody talk about a heaven and a the Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Oh, if you don't love God. If you don't love your neighbor. If you gossip about him. If you never have mercy. If he gets into trouble and you don't try to help him. Wonderful, ain't it true? Amen. Preach it, preach it, sister. Yes, I, I, I was going playing on calling the show the Reverend Know It All Fire Baptized Holiness Gospel Hour, but it wouldn't fit into space, so we call it what Simon says. At any rate, let's go to letters. I got a wonderful letter from. Uh, um, uh, Let's see here from uh, Jay in Alpena, which asks a truly obscure question. Um, the the uh, um, he was listening to thoughts about Judgment Day. You know that I have one theory, and and uh, um, uh, Patrick Madrid has another theory, and I think Patrick Madrid is probably right. But um, he, he threw in a verse that I got to look at and see if it does apply. But he, I was also wondering about the dog in Tobit. I think they travel with Tobias and Raphael. Is there any meaning to that? This is fascinating. This is this is somebody who's reading the actual Bible because nobody would notice Tobit's dog. Dogs were a problem. In the scriptures, they are always bad, except in the book of Tobias. Uh, this dog just sort of pops up. Uh, 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 the dog just wanders in the story. The young man went out and the angel went with him and the dog went along with them. What? Where was the dog? Right, the, the dog went along with them. Where was the dog from? That's Tobiah, the Tobit, the book of Tob, uh, sixth chapter, 12th verse. And then it, the dog is mentioned again in the book of Tob, 11th chapter, 4th verse. Well, one theory is the dog was another angel. No, not now. Hang on, hang on. I'm going to tell a story that I've told before. Uh, um, as for me, when I was with you, I was not acting on my own will, but by the will of God. Bless him each and every day for his praises. You know that the angel is a is a uh, an answer to God's prayer, and then Tobit blesses the two companions before they leave. In other words. Uh, make the dog and you know, there's two companions blessings be upon you brother then he called his son 
and and said to them, well, let me see, may God in heaven bring you both safely there and return you in good health to me. May his angel accompany you both for your safety. In other words, Tobit is saying he's not recognizing Raphael as an angel. He's asking for an angel to accompany his son and the angel Raphael. Hence, the theory arises that the dog is an angel. Now, I think I've told you the story. There was a young woman who came to my office when I was a young priest sobbing. And she said, can God ever appear as a dog, Father? And I said, what? And she told me a story that she had been coming home on a snowy day, and a man had come out of the gangway. That's one of those little alleys in Chicago. Come out of the gangway and and, uh, threatened to assault her. And this white dog appeared out of nowhere and just stood between her and the man growling, and the dog led her home. This man went around through the alley and tried to... But the dog always intervened. And she came into the... I'm not making this story up. She came into the yard, uh, closed the door, locked the dog in the yard, and was going to go up and get some hamburger or something from the refrigerator to reward this dog. And she came down the back the back stairs from, you know, it was one of these three flats in Chicago. And she came down, and her sister was in the yard. And she said, oh, you let that dog out. That dog saved my life. I was going to give this to the dog, this hamburger. And she said, her sister looked up and said, there was no dog in this yard. And I came in, yes, there was the dog. And she said, look at the snow. There are no dog footprints in the snow. And I said to the young woman, it was an angel. Now go in church and thank God. God, the angels can appear in any form that God wants them to appear in. And this idea that that a dog accompanied them, well, the dog was sent by God to help Tobit. So I love that question. Jay from Alpena, Michigan. Uh, Wonderful. Thanks. Uh, It's Joe, (laughs) I guess. All right. Oh, my goodness. Okay, let's move on. I got another letter here. I got to look at it quickly from, this is from Daniel. Um, uh, He was uh, thanking me for what I said about concomitants, the idea that, the bread becomes the body and blood of Christ in the, the mass and the cup, the wine in the cup becomes the wine in the chalice becomes the body and blood of the Lord. They are the body and blood of the Lord. The cup symbolizes the blood of Christ and the host symbolizes the, the uh, uh, body of the Lord, but they are more than symbolic. They become those things. And so if you receive only the host, you are receiving the body and blood of the Lord. Um, so uh, for fulfilling the commandment we received in, in, in the Gospel of John, it's called the doctrine of concomitance. So uh, he's suggesting the, the practice of intinction. Um, Daniel is, but... Uh, you know, again, um, do what, especially in this time of COVID, what your bishop says to do. Uh, this is a very important thing that um, the responsibility for these things falls on your bishop. So um, there are different uh, different ways to receive uh, both from cup and, and patten. Uh, one is intinction. Uh, one of the things, though, is you should never intinct. You know, it's the custom of some people to take the host and dip it into the chalice. Don't do that for two reasons. One, the gesture of communion is to receive the sacrament, not take the sacrament. But more importantly, probably one of the dirtiest things on anybody's person is their fingernails, and you're dipping your fingernails into a cup 
of consecrated uh, the, the, the precious blood. Don't do that. So, yeah, just a thought about it. So thanks for the comments, Dan. All right, let us move on to what time have I got? Oh, I got time for more letters, I think. Uh, let's see here. Oh, by the way, please, if you're going to call in, call in on the early side, 888 914 9149. Any question you may have about the Lord, the Faith, the Church, and the Big Book on the coffee table, the Bible. 888-914-9149. The phones are quite open. All right, let me go to another letter here. Let's see. Okay. This is from Mercedes. The Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I do not understand the meaning of this particular Beatitude. Poor in spirit. Well, the way that I read it is people who understand the value of money. And don't exaggerate it. Um, I, I, I've known one person in my life, well, actually, few people, but one person who really exhibited poverty of spirit. Uh, I was a young man who was a, a grade school classmate. Well, it was a year or two behind me, but we were good friends, and he was devout. He had uh, a terrible time with drug addiction, and he went to, a, I think it was Teen Challenge, which was a wonderful uh, Assembly of God program for people who were drug addicts and uh um uh he came to know the lord and he returned to the catholic church uh in fact he went and worked with mother Teresa for a while um uh then he came back to the states and got married and um he was a carpenter and a very good one did some work for me in one of my parishes um well, he was doing some pro bono work for the institution that had helped him uh, get free of drug addiction. And uh, there was a, a contractor in Chicago, a very wealthy Christian contractor, who loved to set young Christians up in business and, uh, you know, back them. So he found out this young man was doing this very, very good work. He was building a porch on the back of this institution. And when he found out he was doing this pro bono and... Uh, looked at the work it was good and he came up to my friend and said boy i'm gonna make you a millionaire and uh he was so excited i i was at visiting my parents i had just recently been ordained and i was visiting my parents cutting their lawn and he drove his truck his beat up old truck onto the lawn and he jumped out of the out of the the, the truck and he hugged me and said i'm gonna be a millionaire i'm gonna be a millionaire and i said what and he explained the story and then he got in the car to drive off and tell his wife then he drove back much more slowly the next day. I was sitting on the porch reading, and, and uh, he came up and said, I've decided I'm not going to become a millionaire. I couldn't handle it. That's poverty of spirit. You know, there are a lot of people who are poor materially who are not poor in spirit. They think, oh, if I was rich, I'd be happy. No, if you were rich, you might be even more unhappy. That to understand the value of money, it's a nice thing that you can do good things with. But the idea that it's going to make you happy, no, only Christ is going to make you happy. So that's blessed, uh, you know, favored are the poor in spirit, those people who understand the meaning of money and uh, its use and its misuse. Uh, so that, I think, is how I understand the attitude favored, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, there's so many people who, you remember, I translate, uh, kingdom of heaven is God's royal nature, the majesty of God. Because if you're poor in spirit, if you're rich 
in if if you think that money is everything then you will never value god's majesty because god's majesty is found among the poor at least as much if not much much more frequently than among the rich uh, if you think that money, money, uh, uh, what's the saying? Money can't buy love, but it can improve your bargaining position. If you believe that money can buy happiness, you will never, ever understand God's majesty. So those people who value money for what it is, but not for what it isn't, they can inherit God's royal majesty. Um, but people who think that money is the, the end all and be all of, of life, um, I heard someone say once, well, money is life's report card, isn't it? No, it's not. All right, let's go. We'll come back with a word of the day in this extended word study I'm trying to do. And uh, then we'll take phone calls at 888-914-9149, 888-914-914. This is Father Simon reminding you to take what he says with a grain of salt, maybe a couple grains. is the Hail Mary in Hebrew. It is, I really think, very beautiful. It's by a group called Harpa Dei, H-A-R-P-A-D-E-I, the harp of God. Harpa Dei. That's so I thought we'd play the Hail Mary in Hebrew. It's a beautiful prayer in any language. All right, let's go to the word of the day. All right, I'm grinding an axe here that I've, I've explained the word agape means sacrificial love. And I'm not going to go through all that, but I, I, I want to do an extended word study on 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, in the third verse. And he says, if I give away all that I own, uh, and the word somiso really means to f- pass out his morsels, to feed in other words, if I give everything I have, if I dole it out to the poor to feed them, that's the idea, to supply in little bits. Uh, then he says, and even if I hand over my body, and the traditional translation, now this is going to be difficult, fasten your seatbelts. Um, if I hand over my body, the traditional translation is to be burned. And this is going to upset people because... Uh, uh, it may actually mean so that I may boast. There is a one-letter difference between uh, uh, burning and boasting. It's kauthesomai uh, 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 means to boast, and I think it's kauthesomai means to burn. And um, it may simply be 
some very tired uh, uh, what's the word some very tired scribe missing ex- confusing a uh, 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 he with a theta in in Greek so but but this is the Bible what what's the Bible really say I think it makes more sense to say if I hand over my body that I may boast because that kind of thing was done the handing over one's body you could and, and I'm not please take this with a grain of salt but you could sell yourself into slavery uh, and it was done in the ancient world. Uh, for instance, a, a Greek scholar could starve in Greece um, in a very scholarly way. But what he would do is hire himself or sell himself as a slave to be the teacher uh, of of some Roman official's kid. And uh, uh, he would keep his purchase price and invest it. And then he would get tips and bonuses and gifts and that sort of thing. And he would invest them. And then he would usually be given his freedom and Roman citizenship when the job was done. And, uh, you know, he could retire uh, handsomely after raising some little Roman brat for for 10 years. Uh, and this was called a pedagogue, someone who led a child about. Uh, now, so this idea of selling yourself into slavery, it, it happened. And, and I think that that's a, a very um, possible translation. Even if I hand over my body... In order to boast, it's a noble thing to hand yourself over, even physically, for for the service of the poor or for the service of the church. Uh, um, but if you do it so that you can boast, well, that's not sacrificial love. Oh, he's given so much. Yes, yes, and he's very proud of his humility. Um, no, that, that it makes more sense actually to me to think that that it's kalchesomai, not kalthesomai. See, there's the he and the the. So there, so even if I hand my body over to be, uh, so that I may my so that I may, may boast, but do not have love, it doesn't help me at all. I am not. I am not. I, I make no profit. Uh, that's the idea that you would sell yourself in order to make a profit. Uh, what else you got to sell? So I, I think that that's kind of an interesting. Uh, um, um, Detail. So, well, with that said, let us go to phones. Whom do we have on the phone, dear voice there is in my head? Something the matter with your phone. Oh, there's something a matter with my phone. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. Whom do we have? Gloria from Queens. Is that right, Gloria? Yes, Gloria, what father. can I do for you? Good. Thank what you, can father. I do for you? Thank you. Okay, my question is: um, the, uh, a Muslim man kept telling me that my Bible. Catholic Bible is not valid because it has undergone many translations uh, since the very beginning, as opposed to the Quran that has never been translated and is always read in the original language. I didn't know um, how to answer this man. Could you please help me, Father? Sure. We don't translate a translation of a translation of a translation. That when a new translation is needed, what we do is we go back to the original text. And the original text, we have we have copies of, uh, they're called pericopes. In other words, little, little itty-bitty fragments uh, of scripture that go back to within the lifetime of, um, of of the of the earliest Christians, it's possible. Uh, so we have the evidence of of the exactness of our scriptures. Uh, 
that goes back to the first and second century. The Quran, there's no such thing as as a first a first century of Islam Islamic Quran, and that's very controversial. That that the Quran was um, dictated to uh, the angel Gabriel, who dictated it to Muhammad, who told his friends, and when Muhammad died. They wrote down on little potsherds and little bits of bone and little scraps of whatever they had, the different sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. And then eventually they were compiled into, into the Quran. Um, and there's great, great uh, um, uh, scholarship or great um, controversy about when it was actually set into a, a text. Now, do not share this with this man. He will simply become enraged about it. But, uh, you know, that this is a very controversial thing to them. The Quran for them has the status of Jesus for us. For us, the Word of God is a person. Now, the scriptures, uh, one of the most interesting things, and I say this for your edification, not, not, don't get into a religious argument with this man. It will do nothing. When he sees Christ in you, then he might become interested in Christianity. But you're never going to argue him into faith because all of his life he has been told this, that the Christians have translated translations of translations of translations, and we don't. A uh, very interesting thing, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, uh, found copies uh, of, of the Hebrew Scriptures and possibly there are some people who claim there were little bits of Christian scripture. That's also very controversial. I don't know the Maudlin fragments, and no scholars like them, but I'm not going to go there. However, those sections of the of the Old Testament, for instance, the, I think they have a complete scroll of Isaiah. It's exactly the same with almost no variation. In other words, we've, we, have some, we have pieces of our scripture that are 2,000 years old. And they're exactly the same in Hebrew as what we look at now. There has been no variation. Thus, uh, we can really rely on the text of Scripture. And um, you're never going to convince the man of that, but we, we do. And we don't translate translations of translations of translations. We translate the original texts, and we look at texts. We have texts that go back to the time of Christ. Does that help? Yes, Father. Thank you so much. Yeah, and you know that 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 uh, you know again, the Bible is not a book; it's a library. I tell you this all the time. Bible is a library. It has seventy books in it, and some of the manuscripts of those books go way, way back. And uh, uh, I think that that that's an important thing to understand. All right, hope that helps a little. And you know, everybody, don't don't argue with with people. You know about about this. Um, if Saint Peter says in his first epistle, if they if someone asks you about this hope of yours, be ready to to explain it. But you know, I think people have to see Christ in you long before they hear uh, an argument. You know, I mean, it gets kind of comical arguing about the God who's love. All right, let's go to Joanne from Milwaukee. Are you with us, Joanne? Yes, I am, Father. Here's my two, I have two questions. Oh, <laughs> Here's what it is. How come a long time ago in the world, when our Lord was on earth, there was no confession? I mean, some of the greatest people like David, you know, they committed adultery, they have somebody killed, whatever. Did those people have, like, true repentance? 
how did they have their sins forgiven? Second thing is, I had two brothers that died, one apart from the, each other, and I wanted to know if they would be aware that one died. One of the brothers was very sated, and the other one had many weaknesses, so Freddie was a good egg. So I was wondering if they were aware of that. That's the two questions I have, Father, and I'll listen to the answers. Well, I will answer the second one first. That, you know, it's very interesting. I've, I've met all sorts of people who've had these beyond and back experiences, and it's very interesting uh, when some, especially with little kids, uh, um, I've heard stories of little kids who, who lose vital signs, and, and they say, oh, I was in heaven. And, and, uh, and there's this girl who came up and said she was my sister, and her name was this. And, of course, there was a miscarriage or a, a child who died in infancy, and they never told uh, this kid about this. So, yeah, I think, the, I think that those who have gone before are very, very much aware of, of what's going on in the world. Scripture says that, that uh, we will know as we are known. And I think uh, as we draw closer to the Lord, uh, that, that, that we know more. That's, that's what I have been led to believe. So, yeah. Um, and people wonder if, if our, our relatives who gone before pray for us, if they're, if they die in a state of grace, I think they most certainly do. Now, the first question, what happens with these horrible sinners in the Old Testament? I, I love to, to quote, and I hope I quote him accurately, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, who said that, that God makes the offer of salvation uh, available in some way in his justice and mercy. He makes the offer of salvation to everyone. And those those egregious sinners of the Old Testament, we read in First Peter in two different sections, I think in the third chapter and in, I think in the fourth chapter, post-death salvation is mentioned. And so the idea that, that, that God can make the offer of salvation even after a person has left this world, well, God can do what he wants because he's God. And in his justice, I have no doubt he contrives a way to apply the the forgiveness received on Calvary through the cross of Christ to those people who genuinely repent, uh, who, who ask for his forgiveness. So does that answer your questions? You betcha, Father. Father, you could have been in show business. You got that knack about you. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> dear. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, unfortunately, sometimes they're similar. So at any rate, and I don't think they I should think be. So. All right. Thanks so yeah, much for calling in. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Whom do we have now, dear voice in my head? Connor from Helena. Oh, I love Helena. Helena's a great town. I've been there, and it's gorgeous. You've got a gorgeous cathedral, and I, I like Helena. So at any rate, Connor, what can I do for you? Hey, Father Simon, thanks for all you do. Well, I'm honored to do it. It's fun. What can I do for you? Hey, I had a question, Father. Um, I'm Catholic. I'm married. My wife is baptized Lutheran. Mm -hmm. um, can I receive Holy Communion? Can you receive Holy Communion? Are you married in church? Uh, no. Oh, then you gotta got to get a sacramental marriage. Because, you see, uh, we believe that marriage, in a way, is the ultimate sacrament. The word sacrament means oath to the death. And as Catholics, we really are required to be in a sacramental marriage. So is your wife totally opposed to having your, your marriage, what we would call, validated in the Catholic Church? Uh, a, a little bit. Um, I pray about it every day, but I know well, it's, it's not it's, in my time, it's in God's time. It's yeah, but but understand that you can do this in a rectory office. 
I mean, you don't have to, it's just, and it's not a renunciation of, of your vows, the vows that you made, uh, or the promises that you made civilly. It's, it's a reinforcement of them. It's what we call a convalidation that, that, uh, it's, it's a recognition in a sense of what you did and it's a strengthening of it. And, um, I would let her know that it does not have to be a big ceremony. You don't even have to tell anybody about it. You can just do a very simple, very quiet preparation for sacramental marriage. And, um, it would be kind of a renewal of that, a renewal and a reinforcement of, of those promises that you made. Um, so uh, maybe if she wants to send me an email about this or maybe have her listen to this segment, you know, you don't want to repudiate that, that promise you made to her. You want to strengthen it. And, um, I, I think that, that that's the approach to take that, that in your spiritual life, you want to make the, the deepest commitment possible to her and to your, your kids. If you have any, does that help a little bit? Perfect. Thank you, father. Well, God bless you. And I'll be praying for you, Connor. All right. Whom do we have now? Dear voice in my head. Dave from Redwood City. Are you with us, Dave? What can I do for you? Father Simon, shall I be correct in not attending a relative's same-sex ceremony? Well, <laughs> I would say that, yeah, you would be correct because... What are they celebrating? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that that um, you know, and I think the approach that you take is well, can can you know, you got a conscience, you know, uh, you hope that they're acting in good conscience, and I mean that, you know, uh, a person who experiences same-sex attraction who's been raised his or her whole life to think this is a wonderful thing, maybe they're acting in good conscience. You respect their conscience. You've got a conscience, though, too, and your conscience tells you that, that you have to follow Jesus, and Jesus defined marriage. He said, for this, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his woman. The word in the text is gine, which means woman. He clings to his woman, and the two become one flesh. Jesus defines marriage as an exclusive commitment. You leave father and mother. You cling to your woman. He defines it with clinging. It's a permanency. In other words, there's, there's, there isn't the possibility, you aren't entertaining the possibility of divorce. And it is between a man and a woman because he uses the word woman. And the two become one flesh. And not all people are able to have children, uh, but we believe that every intimate act has to be open to the gift of human life. Because where are you more one being than in your children. I really understood that when my mother stood at the coffin of her, her college sweetheart, who happened to be her husband of many, many years, and she touched his cold, dead hand, then touched my brother's warm hand. And I realized she was touching the man that she loved. They had become one in their children. And not everyone can do that, but the sanctity of marriage creates a safe space for children. So, you know... Because I'm a Christian, I, I have to f do what Jesus said. And I have to recognize marriage as a permanent, uh, productive uh, a union between a man and a woman. I'm sorry. Uh, maybe Jesus was wrong, but I think he was right, so I'm going to follow Jesus. And just remember that you have to keep an open mind, but it's quite another thing to let geese fly around in there. Speaking of open-minded... 
Stay tuned because Drew's coming up.